I eat extra sharp. That's what I eat. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. I'm not gay no more. I am delivered. Oh, the humanity. Today, Junior. <laughs> Broadcasting live to tape across the nation and the world from the Lorena Bobbitt Theater in a city whose massive dikes protect it from the ravages of the North Sea, beautiful North Seattle. It's the podcast for a world gone mad. This is The Society Show. And now, your host, Google's Customer of the Year, Christian Patterson. Who the fuck are you? Shut up, bitch! Hello and welcome to the Society Show. Do you believe in society's laws? My name is Christian. Today is Thursday, December 15th. Welcome to the show and happy holidays. Merry Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, happy all the other holidays. But uh, it's the holiday season and I have a guest today to use this season to talk about something that's not particularly topical but um anyway let me introduce my guest and we'll get into it please welcome i believe this is your third time appearance uh please welcome pat to the show thanks christian happy to be back glad to uh analyze our our crazy society that uh we live in society Hey, yes, thank you. Um, then you came to the right place. Um, yeah, so this episode, what we're going to be talking about is, uh, so we're going to start out talking about the new CIA podcast, The Langley Files. And before we get into that, how much did you listen to that? Because I listened to the first three episodes and I was like, I don't know if I have to listen to more to get the gist of this podcast. No, exactly. <laughs> I I mean, I, th- I think I listened to like seven or eight episodes, but a lot of that was, you know, after a certain point, I'm like, this is background noise. You kind mm-hmm. of get the idea of everything they're saying is like, you know, extremely kind of uh, just puffy. Yes. Yeah. And we'll definitely get into that more. And um Kind of the main story we will be talking about is the Plame Affair and all of the things that followed with that. If you're not familiar, like if you remember hearing about Scooter Libby in the 2000s, it's probably because of that. But we'll get a lot more into it. Nice. Yeah, but before we get into any of that, um, any any topics you would like to bring up to the podcast? Yeah, so I, you know, just kind of general uh, media consumption and stuff. Decent year for gaming. We just had the Game Awards. Elden Ring won, uh, like, best game or whatever. I don't know. I, I really enjoyed that. Another game I played this year that I thought was just, like, comedically terrible was Homefront The Revolution. You heard of this game? <laughs> I have. Well, I've heard of other versions of it. I don't know. Was there one like a few years ago? Or... Yeah. So yeah, this wasn't a new game. Okay. I, I played it 
specifically because people found out that the entirety of Time Splitters 2 was like an Easter egg in the game. <laughs> yes. So I waited until it was like $5 on the PlayStation Store and then uh, I got it and played as much as I had to up until the point where you can play Time Splitters 2. <laughs> yes. Um, and sat through like, God, I don't know five to eight hours of uh, this insane scenario where North Korea invades like the US it <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this game yeah uh, so it sounds like it's basically red dawn but exactly. stupider yeah yeah it's dumb red dawn um <laughs> yes. I, as I was going through it I was like this feels like they kind of meant the game to be um, like about China. Just because the idea of North Korea being this, like, tech powerhouse that can ultimately kind of overtake the U.S. is, like, laughable. Mm -hmm. And then I came in to find out the game was actually originally about China, and then they decided to change it because they also wanted to sell it in China. Yes. Um, but, yeah, it's just... It really, the gameplay is a standard kind of far cry where you're, uh, you know, you've got these little, like, compounds you're trying to get. You've got various missions where it's, like, go to this place, kill this guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, a real slog. Can't say I recommend it. In, in the game, they refer to the North Koreans as norks. <laughs> Which, like, by hour two, started just really feeling like a slur. Absolutely. Like, I don't think I've ever heard that in real life, but every time they would say that in the game, I'm wincing. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, Nork. Yeah, God. But the game was developed by... Which, it was also... The original version I never played, but it was, like, an hour or two hours or something. And this game is, I think, ultimately just kind of a more fleshed out version of it. Okay. But the development studio was the the kind of husk of um, Rare, which then became Free Radical. So that's like the, the people who developed like Goldeneye, Perfect Dark. And then Free Radical is like the Time Splitters developers. And then somewhere in there, these companies and studios got swept up in like some like private equity acquisition that merged them with the remains of Crytek. Yeah, so, I remember that part of it. Yeah, so that's why it like it has the feeling of a Far Cry. Um because even though all, the first Far Cry was the only one actually developed by them and then they did Crisis, mm -hmm. which I guess also took place in North Korea. So interesting through line there. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, it's just kind of sad that this like story game studio is now making this like D-list essentially propaganda piece um, that everyone hated and I only played because I could play one of their old better games inside of it in like an arcade <laughs> yes. cabinet in a giant prison that you have to play through like two thirds to get to. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And you, Crisis is a funny game to bring up too because it's like, I'm sure it was good. Like at the time it got decent reviews, but um, I don't know anyone who played it because it was so resource intensive on your computer and it also just seems like the type of game that aged really poorly. Yeah, I haven't returned to Crisis. I actually, when it around the time it came out, I like built a new PC. Nice. So I was like, okay, I'm going to buy whatever GPU will let me play this game on like medium settings or whatever. <laughs> yes. And I got through like, I don't know, probably about the same amount of time, like less than 10 hours. And I was like, okay, I get the gist. And that was like at a point in my life where I was like, okay, I'm uh, tired of like how formulaic video games are. 
I'm ostensibly in college and should probably, if I'm doing repetitive shit, I should like focus on that instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was a fun enough game and it looked really cool. I think they recently re-released Crisis on like modern consoles as well, but they, they even had to downscale it because oh, wow. for that game to run like natively on, I think it was like PS4 Pro at the time. I don't know if the 5 was out, but they still had to like um, like make some modifications to it just so it even run. Interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll check it out. Um, that seems pretty cool. The, uh, the main game I have been playing, I mean, I have the PS5. I got that a couple months ago, and I've mostly been playing through old PS4 games that also have a PS5 version, just, like, checking out the graphics and going back to the well. But I have been playing the new Pokemon. Um, nice. Do you have experience with this one or any of the others? I don't. I honestly haven't played a Pokemon probably since, like, Gold Silver, mm-hmm. um, which I did recently bust out my, like, old Game Boy, um, like, Pocket and Advanced um, just to <laughs> nice. kind of like replay some of those. I did have to re-solder the batteries in my Pokemon Yellow and Gold and Silver <laughs> because it all died and I lost my saves. Wow, like I've heard of that happening, but I've never heard of it actually happening. <laughs> it's real. Man, it's a bummer. For whatever reason, my red version still had my save. Um, I guess I don't know, Nintendo used a better battery in those or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Um, but, yeah, I haven't played any of the newer ones. So how is it? How are you liking it? I've seen some uh, not great. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, there are bugs in it. That's what most people have seen if they haven't played it. But And I had it crash on me once. But other than that, it's like pretty cosmetic and mm. you know i would play a pokey a new pokemon game every year that was just the same 2d style with like the same graphics from like game boy advance like i don't when i play them i'm not really caring that much about that stuff yeah. but uh there is an exploit that you will usually discover on your own. Like, I started kind of figuring it out and looked it up, and sure enough, everyone else had too. But you can jump backwards up cliffs that you're not supposed to climb. Oh. All you have to do is get on your mount and, like, jump backwards, and it'll work. Wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's one thing. I will say it's like, you know, the battling's fun, catching them all is fun, but the open world is pretty bland. Like, there's not a lot of, um, I guess, like, you know, if you think about Elden Ring, there's a lot of uh, landmarks and stuff to, like, orient yourself around, and in this, it's just kind of big open field. Yeah. Did you play uh, Ar- Arceus? Was that the previous one? No, I did not. That's the only Pokemon... Well, it's not a mainline one. It's kind oh, of a yeah. spinoff. So I have played every mainline one. I want to go back to it, but I have not played it. Nice. I do know the graphics are worse, though, which is crazy, because a year ago, people were complaining about... The graphics I remember on that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's really... When I get a new Pokemon, I just... I kind of go back into, like, elementary school mode a little bit. Yeah, hell yeah. Like, I'll just... That's, like, the only type of game where I'm, like, I can just... 
hone in on it and not be like distracted by other stuff yeah that's like a, a lot of modern games i don't know it's the factor of like having a job and being an adult and stuff and it's i'll get to a point where i'm like kind of i don't know i like lose steam with it like um sekiro have you played sekiro no i haven't but i've i haven't installed it yet man great game um i've been playing it since like october of uh 2020 and i just like i'll like get to a certain point i'll like hit a boss and then i'm like okay i you know i'm like too distracted by work or whatever and i can't carry both these things in my mind at the same time yeah so i'm now at like the final two bosses in the game i've been there since like june and i'm now like okay my goal for the remainder of the year is to uh defeat the demon of hate and uh well, who are the final bosses? <laughs> yeah. Like your dad or whatever. Your dad who is also God. Uh, yeah, I guess that's growing up in a lot of ways, but just, just becoming disinterested with games or having a different relationship to them. Like, one thing I noticed that shifted in me was when I was playing the uh, newest Assassin's Creed because I liked Odyssey and Origins, but then the newest one, I was just like, if I make the 80 hours to beat this like what will be different <laughs> exactly <laughs> like in in i guess maybe i don't feel that when i play pokemon because i've like transferred all of them through the games through the generation oh, wow, nice. so it's more like it feels like a bigger <laughs> yeah there's still something yeah you're kind of bringing with you <laughs> yeah or it's yeah some like kind of new franchise or whatever it's like I, you know, almost out of uh, self-preservation, I sometimes can't allow myself to get too, like, deep into a game. Because then it's, like, all I think about or something. And then mm -hmm. I'm, like, working from home. I'm, like, <laughs> all right, well, I have my PlayStation, like, hooked up to the same monitor I'm working off of. And, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, things can, uh, uh, you can lose track of stuff. So, I'm, like... <laughs> I got to uh, put a limit on things sometimes. Yeah, and just quickly, we, we'll we'll wrap this segment up, but I wanted to ask, like, did you beat Elden Ring? Uh, I did. I actually platinumed it. Oh, Which nice. I think one of the only games I have a platinum on. Wow. Yeah. I did, I, I just, like, save scum it. Like, I would, I, I think that's the term where I would, like, you know, get one ending and then I would download my save from, like, PlayStation Cloud. Oh, yeah. Well... I mean, that might technically be save scumming, but if it's for achievements, it's not like you're, like, breaking the game. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I've only got so much time in my life. <laughs> yeah, and uh, my experience with Elden Ring, I got about 25 hours in, and then I almost reached the point where you could, like, respec. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I yeah. think that's pretty early, like, after the, the first big castle or whatever. Yeah. Or a little bit, I don't know, but... um. I was like, I feel like I chose a really bad spec, at least for, like, early game. Like, I put all my points in strength and endurance. Oh. And um, I know that's, like, that's, I mean, that's how I'd play in Dark Souls. Yeah. That was kind of what was encouraged in Dark Souls. But um, just wielding the giant swords, I don't feel like I had the right timing to play that way. Yeah, yeah the, the bonk build was, like, tougher in this one. <laughs> yeah, so um i did download the ps5 version and kind of wanted to just do a fresh start and see i i think i'll get further this time yeah but yeah um it is a great game i mean when i was playing it i had fun my life is like a 
video game Trying hard to beat the stage All while I am still collecting coins Trying hard to save the girl Obstacles, I'm jumping hurdles I'm growing up to be a big boy I guess we should get into some CIA type stuff. Yeah, let's. Yeah, so let's start out with the the CIA podcast called Langley Files. And um, just to give an overview before I talk about specific things in these first three episodes I wanted to point out is like... I re in September I started um I got promoted and I started working in like more of an admin type scenario like a and my teammates all do administrative planning and whatnot and th this podcast seems like an idea my coworker might throw out in our <laughs> like biweekly meetings like Oh, here's how we could get staff and the public more engaged. Like, that's it, because it just feels really divorced from actual CIA activities. It seems like it's just administrators goofing off, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. I think it very much kind of, uh, yeah, just tries to give you the idea that the CIA is this, like, nonpartisan, just, um, yeah, like they do the paperwork for Empire. <laughs> yeah, but they they would probably, I mean, they would never use the word Empire yeah, exactly. themselves, <laughs> though. Um, it, yeah, it has a very squeaky clean approach. And um, so going into the first episode, like one thing, and they emphasize this in other episodes as well, they'll always be like, there's so many misconceptions, but working at the CIA is not like being James Bond, and it's just like, who... I mean, I guess people might think that way, but if they've ever, like, thought about it more than a few seconds, it's not like they think the CIA is all James Bond. Exactly. It's like, that also... I don't know, I'm sure there are some people... <laughs> they would even have to say who do have the kind of uh, the swankier, like, you know, the espionage and the, the killing and, and whatnot <laughs> versus yeah. just people in an office uh, kind of like goofing around. Yeah, because, I mean, I imagine the people making this podcast don't even know who are secret agents. Exactly. Like, they don't have any insight into that. But um, one thing they did say in this episode that kind of piqued my interest is because they were interviewing the CIA director. I don't even remember his name. Do you know the current one? I, I forget his name. Yeah, so he was... The one thing he kind of bragged about when he was getting into more specific material details is he said that through the CIA's intelligence contacts, they helped disseminate the narratives about the Russia-Ukraine war ahead of time. I thought this was a really interesting kind of... Uh, it, it, he, well, I'm kind I of like, I don't know behind the curtain almost yeah. intentionally or not. So yeah. it's like, I th I'm sure we both remember like the lead up to the whole kind of Ukraine conflagration. Like there, it just really felt like there were a lot of kind of narratives floating around. Yeah, it was in everyone thought it was kind of 
fake where it'd be like articles every day basically like Russia's gonna attack Ukraine and you know what should we do and people were like oh that's fear mongering that's not gonna happen and it comes to find out that it was fear mongering but it was also going to happen <laughs> yeah which is a dynamic that in my like young ish life of being aware of this stuff i don't remember that ever happening it just felt so much like the run up to the the Iraq war it's like there's there's a big bad guy and he's going to do a, a big bad thing uh-huh. it's like yeah okay it's like russia has kind of been the villain for like years at this point it's like okay, it just feels like more of this, and then uh, and then it came to happen. I was like, oh, well, I feel like a real idiot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't supposed to happen yeah. as far as we knew, but like, yeah. Another thing about this is just thinking about how uniform their response to the Russia-Ukraine situation has been in like mainstream media. And what what made me think about this again is when the Progressive Caucus. Um, in Congress or whatever released a statement being like we should try to negotiate an end to this war and then the mainstream press was like super upset about that they're like how dare you forsake Ukraine and I was like well that seems like a very aligned response with how he kind of described it exactly Yeah, and then just another thing he really tries to make a point of in this episode is that saying that the CIA is apolitical and all they do is provide the best info they have to the politicians. And it's like, I mean, I wonder how much he actually believes that because it's like, Obviously, he's the director. He knows what the CIA does. But I could see a lot of, like, really smart operatives like that earnestly believing, like, what we're doing isn't political, even though that's, like, so stupid. No, exactly. It's, like, it's apolitical within the context of neoliberalism. (laughs) Yes. It's, like, I, yeah, we're... You know, we don't pick a side as long as it's within the kind of greater, like, world that uh, that we live in. Yeah, and it, it just, it seems like, it's like, they're apolitical, but only if you buy into all the premises of the U.S. apparatus. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, and then so on the second episode, like, they kept doing this thing, and they did this in the first one, too, where they basically are like, oh, and we're really going to acknowledge the the (laughs) things in our past, we're really gonna get there, and then they'll be like... (laughs) <laughs> they'll just keep going like the CIA is awesome and they have done some really cool thing like they keep like make it seem like they're gonna it admit like fault click bait. <laughs> yeah. or the listening bait <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly I'm like what are they gonna admit and then it just never is anything yeah um, <laughs> and then the third episode the only real the 
they basically interviewed a talent recruiter, which it's also like, yeah, he doesn't know anything. But um, one thing he did say that I wanted to highlight is um, he said, we're not a policy shop referring to the CIA. We give information that informs policy. And so that information has to be very accurate. And that kind of similar to the apolitical thing, it just seems so like minimizing where it's like it, it, he he kind of is saying like we do write policy but indirectly yeah it's like yeah they're not like the the think tanks that are creating the documents or the like yeah these policy proposals but they are like feeding into the ecosystem that think tanks like exist in mm-hmm. so it's like yeah you're just um you're setting the the like algorithm for the Minecraft world. Yeah, like if you imagine like the talking points kind of maybe they start at the CIA, then disseminate down, and then like they go to Alex Jones and then like <laughs> they go to Tucker Carlson after that. They're basically saying we, we don't write the policy. We're one level higher than the people who yeah. write the policy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so, like I said, I only listened to the first three episodes and I was like, this is worth talking about, but I don't think listening to more will yield that much more information. What What is your takeaway? From- I, yeah, I mean, I, so when I started listening to it, I was listening to it in reverse just because that was like how my podcast app mm-hmm. was set up. And then I was like, oh, right. I should sort this from oldest to newest. But yeah, so the, I think the two most recent ones are, they're just talking about like, the the archives and the like museum at CIA which that's another thing that like r- kept routinely getting on my nerves is the way they would drop the definite article we were kind of talking about this but they would say they always talk about at CIA we blah 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 and they never say the CIA and it drives me nuts um and it's funny because I I worked at the Apple store briefly so I like dealt with a certain amount of their kind of internal communications. Apple talks the exact same way. If you read (laughs) Apple's like product documentation, they'll be like, well, iPhone will blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I, (laughs) whatever connection there is, it seems very clear in their, just like their, uh, speech style. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, these are the type of people who probably write the communication guidelines. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. Whoever. Yeah. Like some like, um, like, yeah. Style guide person went on to Apple or, you know, like bounce back and forth. For sure. And I'm glad you brought up the CIA museum because it seems like this the CIA museum is new and it seems like this podcast is sort of this part of the same operation to basically promote it mm-hmm. um but i was looking it up and the CIA museum is not even open to the public so. yeah i mean that's the name of the episode is the greatest museum you'll never see <laughs> yeah. so it's yeah it's this weird kind of pr thing to like spin the cia as like uh you know like a friendly organization of some form but there's still everything we get is uh, extremely kind of filtered i am william f buckley of the central intelligence agency here to control and steer the conservative movement into the sewer line you know i think if you're ready i think this is a good opportunity to talk about valerie plame let's and i will say you know when i 
read this whole thing and kind of got into the details more, the conclusion I was left with myself is wondering, like so many topics, like, does this ultimately come from the CIA? And we'll get into that at the end after yeah. we, like, unpack it. But, like, that that's the question I was left with. Um, so I guess I'll spell out the basics and then, um, you know... Let, we'll just go from there. Um, so, like, if you don't know about the Plame affair and Valerie Plame, I didn't know much about it, and it's really impenetrable at first to, like, unpack all of the details. Yeah, it is dense. It, uh-huh. I mean, yeah, you com- kind of compared it to the, uh, like, Russiagate stuff. Which, sorry if I'm jumping ahead. but No, go ahead. It Yeah, it's just very much one of those stories where it's this kind of, like beehive of just names of people who once you've really gotten into it, you're like kind of, you have to almost assemble a cork board mm-hmm. with red string of who all these people are and what their relations are. And then by the end of it, you're like, well, so what do we actually, what did we learn from this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the Mueller investigation of Trump, that is definitely, in my opinion, the closest parallel. Um, because I still don't understand a lot of what happened with that. It was like a daily news cycle for some people for like a year and a half. Yeah, no, I, I followed it like annoyingly, stupidly closely. My like right-wing deskmate at work would always like be whining about it from his perspective. So I was in the back of my mind, I'm like, I need to know everything possible about this to like own this guy. And at the end of it, I'm still, I don't know, I could barely tell you the broader points of the story. <laughs> yes. You know, before we get into it a little more, I do want to point out that Richard Hermitage, who... Sorry, I think Armitage. Armitage? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, because I was like, um, I was like, I feel like I should have heard this guy's name, but in my head I was saying <laughs> Hermitage, but I have heard of Richard Armitage. Thank you. So he it will become involved later on. And um, he is the grandpa of Ian Armitage, who is most known as Young Sheldon and its new spinoff that you've heard on the society show Pubescent Sheldon. Um, so that's that's crazy. And, and you know, friend of the of serials Adnan Syed. Yes, as heard in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I'll when when he comes up again, I'll be sure to note that. But uh, just the details of the case. So Valerie Plame was a CIA agent, and her identity was leaked to the Washington Post reporter named Robert Novak. And then the 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 source of the information was tracked back to Richard Armitage. And then Scooter Libby, and, you know, like I said, that's why you heard about Scooter Libby so much in this period. He's the only one who got prosecuted for it. Yeah, and I could get into the specifics of what was reported about her, but do you have anything to add just of, like, the general outline of events? I, just that, similar to Trump-Russia, or, yeah, the Mueller investigation, at the time, like, during the uh, kind of mid-period of the Iraq War, like, second-term Bush, 
this was similar in that there are these constant stories coming out and in the back of my mind as like a you know, young lib I was like okay this is gonna this is the end of Bush like <laughs> the walls are closing in Scooter Libby the, ruined it for everyone and uh, he's going to be impeached and then that was kind of my first taste of like these stories never actually go anywhere yeah. and it's like this years long semi-circus semi it is like a legitimate thing that should be covered and exposed um but nothing nothing material actually happens yeah because when you get into it like the real drama at play is politicians giving information to reporters and um how journalists use that information like it ends up being less about any specifics related to Valerie Plame and the WMDs. Yeah, it's it, yeah, really the meta story around it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um what started it is after the invasion of Iraq, John or excuse me, Joseph Wilson wrote op-eds questioning the Bush administration and he was a diplomat to Niger. So a big part of the early weapons of mass destruction claims was that Iraq was buying uranium from Niger. And uh, Joseph C. Wilson, the diplomat, said that as far as he knew, that's not true. And it just didn't seem legit. And also keep in mind that this info came initially from like a spurious Italian report that... Um, just seemed kind of phony to begin with. Um, but he was like the first legit person with insight into the situation, basically saying WMDs are phony. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... So I also, I watched the movie based on this last night, Fair Play, where uh, Sean Penn plays Joseph C. Wilson. Um, the entire time, just very distracted by uh, the, like incomprehensibly thick head of hair this man has um and just that where he's like a let or kind of ostensibly the hero of the movie but in real life we all know he's just like an awful person mm -hmm. uh, abuser etc so you know interesting kind of pre me too kind of uh portrayal of or use of this actor i guess i feel like he doesn't really pop up and stuff now uh, but but sean point, Penn. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I thought you. I didn't know if you were talking about Joseph Wilson or Sean. Oh, Finn. sorry. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't see him, Joseph Wilson pop up too much either. But I, <laughs> yeah. I might just not be watching for him. But yeah, Sean Penn. Yeah, I kind of can't stand him. I mean, he he's a decent actor, but I, he's, he's just done great movies. Yeah. Also, I feel like someone who people always accuse of being like a spook or something, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like a CIA asset in some capacity who acts in movies about things that are related to them yeah definitely and um so the fallout from joseph wilson writing this article is that robert novak wrote an article called mission to niger and i'm going to quote directly what he says so he says quote the CIA's decision to send retired diplomat Joseph C. Wilson to Africa in February 2002 to investigate possible Iraqi purchases of uranium 
was made routinely at a low level without director George Tenet's knowledge. Remarkably, this produced a political firestorm that has not yet subsided. So that's just kind of laying it out, just so you get the full context. That was the opening paragraph, and here's when he actually mentions her name. So he says, quote, Wilson never worked for the CIA, but his wife, Valerie Plame, is an agency operative on weapons of mass destruction. Two senior administration officials told me that Wilson's wife suggested sending him to Niger to investigate the Italian report. The CIA says its counter-proliferation officials selected Wilson and asked his wife to contact him. Quote, I will not answer any questions about my wife, Wilson told me. I like that last <laughs> line. Yeah, and so I guess this paragraph, the second paragraph I read, is basically the source of the entire conflict. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, as after having read all of this and watched the movie, I still couldn't tell you anywhere else <laughs> that, like, what would have kind of uh, initiated all of that. I honestly, I'm still not even sure who asked him or like what the the origin of asking him to go investigate in uh, Niger was. Um, whether or not it was actually Valerie who like came up with this or if it was like above her or something. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is weird because it's like it almost that part almost doesn't matter. Like, yeah. it, like it, and it does, even in retrospect, I mean, maybe if I read this at the time, I wouldn't think much of it, but in retrospect, it does seem like mentioning his wife is pretty extraneous details. Like, it doesn't feel that topical to the art. Like, it feels kind of forced in a little bit. Yeah. In the, an interesting thing about that is so Robert Novak claimed he had no idea that Valerie Plame was an undercover agent, but um, what some people looked into is past articles he's written, and he has very consistently and accurately pertained to this like rule in journalism or general practices where you refer to undercover people as operatives, which he did in this case. So it seems like his diction betrays him a little bit by trying to claim he didn't know she was undercover. Interesting. It is almost like if he didn't, if he had no idea truly that she was undercover, then yeah, like why, why mention it in the first place? Uh, it's not really that noteworthy. Yeah, unless um, you're just <laughs> trying to like essentially dox her. Yeah, so one of the things, Robert Novak following this, he changed his story all the time and it's very clear he's covering for different people, but not clear why. So like initially he denied that the information was even purposefully or maliciously leaked to him but the way he described it made it like if i was an intelligence operative that is how i would purposefully or maliciously leak mm -hmm. something like he basically describes someone making an offhanded remark that he asked about and they're like oh you shouldn't know about that <laughs> but we'll tell you anyway like <laughs> yeah and then the people like for whom that is like important or relevant or whatever like they will find that information that way mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and the cia wasn't 
really happy with Novak either because in denying that no one told him not to publish it, he was like, well, the CIA did call me and they made it seem like they didn't want me to publish it. Um, and they were basically like, no, we told you in about as strong of words <laughs> as we could. <laughs> I know. I almost got to wonder what like his other kind of associations to intelligence or like the kind of uh, defense complex or whatever are. Um, but uh, that would be another topic, I guess. Yeah, well, it is worth noting that he was a pretty openly conservative journalist and took a conservative tact. It's not like he was some, like, progressive investigative journalist yeah. or something. I mean, yeah, like, notable, I guess, kind of a member of the Nixon and Ford administrations. Yeah. Did I have a brain tumor, which is always interesting. Oh, Although he, he was also like 78 years old. So, you know, people do actually die for legitimate reasons. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that really kind of, I, it's not highlighted as a point of interest in this case, but I couldn't help think about it, is her secret identity was Valerie Plame. But in real life, she went by Valerie Wilson. But Plain was just her maiden name. And it's, yeah. <laughs> how is that enough to be undercover? I mean, I guess in like pre-Facebook days or something, like, you know, there were just less ways to find out like extremely basic information about people. But yeah, it seems like not one of the best like <laughs> identities to go under. Because she did go under other names. Yeah. There are like these venture capital yeah. firms that she was kind of embedded in that uh -huh. were ultimately kind of the CIA like admitted were just front operations um, because it's weird for something as high profile as this to have basically just be going by her own name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I have a quote from her reaction to the article. She said, quote, my husband came in and dropped the newspaper on the bed and said he did it. We had indications in the week prior that he knew my identity and my true employer. And I guess that's just interesting to me because it's like, we have that quote from John. I keep wanting to say John Wilson, like the show. Oh. Um, what was it again? Oh, Joseph. <clears throat> we have that quote from Joseph Wilson in the article, like, I'm not going to talk about my wife. So mm -hmm. it's just, I really like this quote because you can fill in the whole storyline like, shit, this guy interviewed <laughs> me about my wife. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I said I wasn't going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, when you brought up Robert Novak's intelligence ties, that, um, you know, it kind of bridges the gap from another journalist that got backlash from this incident, and that would be Judith Miller. And she is most known as basically just copy-pasting State Department <laughs> lines to lead us into the Iraq War. But um, before we get into how she's implicated in this, do you have thoughts on Judith Miller's career in general? I don't. I mean, I definitely hadn't thought about her name until uh, we were, like, getting into this. Um, yeah. Yeah, and when she ended up getting called out for 
just kind of copy-pasting State Department talking points. Her argument was like, oh, I'm so principled. Like, I, I, it's not my job to put my perspective. It's my job to say what the government says. And it's like, that is so inverted, but she acts like she's like the most principled person ever. Yeah, so you're just like being a scribe, essentially. <laughs> yes. But the way she was implicated in this is because... In the same way that Robert Novak was leaked a bunch of information about Valerie Plame, uh, so was Judith Miller, and so were a lot of journalists, actually. But the difference is, those journalists cooperated with the investigation into where this information came from, but Judith Miller refused, and she ended up serving jail time, actually. Not not a ton, but... um. Because she just refused to say who told her this. Uh, so she, hey, she's principled in a, a certain respect. <laughs> yeah, she's very principled in respecting um, neo the neoconservatives' consensus, I yeah. guess. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I guess this is a good spot to kind of talk about, like, who was leaking the information and where it was coming from, like, more on the politician side. But do you have any more thoughts on, like, the more journalist side? No, not really. Other than just, you know, real uh, trip down memory lane, seeing all these names again for, um, like, not having really thought about most of these people since, like, the Iraq War. When I, my perspective <laughs> yeah. on this was much, I mean, you know, I was still pretty anti-war, but I was also, like, 17 at the time so i didn't have as much of a concept of uh all these like machinations mm -hmm, for sure and so when the government started being more implicated i mean instantly people suspected that this was coming from someone in the bush administration like it was kind of known but in 2006 um michael isikoff wrote an article for newsweek um, basically saying that Richard Armitage uh, had a crucial role in the Plame affair and that he he gave a statement about it, basically being like, oh yeah, I heard it from this person, but they were talking to this person, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just, he, he did implicate himself, but in a way that, oh, I don't remember who told me, but I heard so-and-so, you know. It was, it, it, yeah, real... He said, she said, she said, I, oh, I forget, <laughs> overheard it. Yeah, but he did basically admit, and he also, um, it, I don't know if he admitted it himself, but he did reveal Valerie Plame's identity to Bob Woodward from Woodward and Bernstein, um, which is, seems like a strange choice to me. Yeah, I, the right of Watergate <laughs> fame. <laughs> yeah. Um, he doesn't seem like the type to kind of bite for a story like that, but who knows? Um, and Carl Rove was also heavily implicated, and I believe the initial way how is that Robert Novak was like, yeah, he's actually the second person to tell me about her. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
And Carl Rove also was ended up getting caught leaking her identity to Chris Matthews um, and a lot of other journalists. And he repeatedly said that Wilson's wife is fair game. That's how it's reported, and that's why the book and movie are called Fair Game. Did they? Did that come up in the movie? Very cute. I I think it did. I honestly, toward the end of the movie, I was like not paying super close attention. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, and so, I mean, already you really get the picture that all of these kind of, not the very top, top level Bush guys, but the more, like, mid-tier, all of them were flapping about it, yeah. (laughs) Like, they were telling everyone, basically. Right, because I'm sure, like, from their perspective, it's like, they, their primary motivation is, like, making it, making sure that this war can go ahead, and... Mm -hmm. Any obstacle to that is something that needs to be overcome. Yeah, it's like not even a question of like, you know, what is true or what is accurate, but is this bad for the war effort slash defending America? And uh, that led to all of this. Yes, definitely. And you know, then through Carl Rove is how Scooter Libby gets implicated. Um, so I guess the official story from the Bush administration, and it, it there's probably some truth to this, although I, m- I imagine it's a lot more widespread than they make it out to be. Dick Cheney told Scooter Libby her identity. Scooter Libby told Carl Rove, and I think also Richard Armitage, and then they just go and tell everyone. That's what they say happened. Right. And just the way they portray it makes it look really um, silly. Like, they just keep peppering her names in conversation. Like, it just makes them seem like... um, gossipy bitches it is extremely like petty in high school (laughs) yeah like jeez you guys like are you adults yeah i mean if they weren't just kind of being like catty and and gossipy then the only other way i see them talking about it is in like official meetings where they're like determining strategy or something yeah and then i mean i almost kind of wonder like is there much of a difference between, like, some of these official meetings or just, like, the chit-chat of these people? Mm-hmm. How much overlap is there? Or is, they'll have, like, their kind of official meeting and take minutes and then they'll, like, go out drinking afterward or whatever. And yeah. then, uh, then share the real gossip. Yeah, it's hard to say. And also, I guess it is sometimes when you're removed from it, you don't really think about the social aspect of politics or I definitely don't. Like I never think about like, well, who's like, who's friending off with who after the meeting. But um, (laughs) yeah, you know, Scooter Libby, he, he ended up the last journalist I have to bring up is a guy named Tim Russer and he ended up getting thrown under the bus really hard by Scooter Libby um Tim Russer he was on Meet the Press he did a lot of stuff for NBC News hey, do you have you heard of this guy independent of this no i he's just like yeah some like lesser character on the news who i just was totally kind of before uh like what i yeah i don't know i didn't even watch a ton of like network news or anything Mm -hmm. yeah and so i mean 
Tim Russer, in a way, he got thrown under the bus. But in another way, he also kind of made himself look horrible. So when Scooter was talking, Scooter Libby was talking to the FBI, he told the FBI that Tim Russert told him the information. He's basically like, I didn't get this from Dick Cheney. (laughs) I got it from Tim Russert. And then... Um, Tim Russert said that they did have a conversation on the exact day that Scooter Libby claims, but Valerie Plain never came up. And a month earlier, he talked to Dick Cheney, um, and this is when he actually learned her identity. Um, and this isn't just conjecture, like it did eventually come out that this is when he learned, but. Wow. Um, but yeah, like Tim Russert still ends up looking like a bad guy for a few reasons for one like he was frequently an anonymous source for robert novak so it seemed like he'd be getting information that he couldn't exactly put on nbc news and then would forward it along to robert novak and just kind of try to launder it out Uh uh-huh and yeah so that came out and um another thing that came out and this is a quote from la times i thought this was funny quote it emerged under examination that russert already had sung like a choir boy to the fbi concerning his conversation with libby and had so voluntarily from the first moment the feds contacted him All the litigation was for the sake of image and because the journalistic conventions required it. And I think this is why Scooter Libby ended up blowing back so hard against him is he was basically like, he did it. Um, (laughs) And the the guy had already like talked to the FBI. Yeah, it's extremely bad look to be tattling at that point. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, Scooter Libby's the only one who really went to trial for this. And the interesting thing is that the jury did convict him. They did find him guilty, but the jurors were interviewed and they were all basically like, yeah, Scooter Libby obviously did this, but it's also obvious he's the the fall guy. So, like, (laughs) where's Carl Rove? Um, Like, that was the jury's position. So, wow. And it's like, yeah, the the purpose of uh, some of these guys is to kind of, I guess, just absorb the heat from the actual, like, administration higher-ups. For sure. And, you know, that's all the details I kind of brought to unpack. And we can get to the kind of closing of that and the points I want to focus on to the real impacts, I guess. But do you have anything you want to add? No, I think what... Uh... Yeah, I'm interested in what, like, broader conclusions we can maybe, like, draw or at least speculate on. Yeah, so I guess one thing I'm just taking as a given is that Dick Cheney was in on this the whole time. Yeah. That seems kind of unquestionable. So Dick Cheney told the investigators that he learned of Valerie Plame's identity directly from the CIA And he was very likely the source for everyone else. We know he was the source for Scooter Libby. But that begs the question then like if did he really get that info from the cia and if he did was was the cia in on it the whole time yeah exactly and i mean you're kind of left wondering was the entire purpose of this whole thing to kind of act as like a counterbalance 
or um, almost like a controlled opposition to the Iraq war that also just happened to like be true, um, <laughs> but to like frame it in a way that like the, that like Dick Cheney and the administration was managing um, through the CIA. Cause watching the movie, you kind of get the impression that like the CIA were the good guys here. They knew the truth all along and they were the like the plucky upstarts trying to like stop this thing from happening Interesting. When, yeah when it's like taking a step back from the movie i was like well wait a second like how much was the cia also responsible for the run-up to the war in the first place like yeah because it's also like the the iraq war was just as much a cia project as like a military and state department project. Yeah, exactly. Like as much as someone, what you would call it the deep state or the military industrial complex or the blob or whatever, all of those, like those organizations were kind of on the same page about wanting this to happen. So it's like, if they see an opportunity, I guess, where someone is kind of presenting some other narrative, they can then say like, well, look, we didn't murder this person. We let opposition exist, but we're still going to kind of drag him through the mud. <laughs> yeah. So I guess if I take that to the most tinfoil hat extremes, like, here's what I think is the most, like, maybe cons the most fully conspiratorial, like, ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And I don't think it gets this far, but it might get close. I think... Um, or this scenario is like Valerie Plame is ready to retire from the CIA, and then she goes to her supervisor. You know, I really like um a good uh, liberal media boost in retirement. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bump on the way out. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, "Well, we have an idea. It might create some issues for you for a few years, but your your book will sell like hotcakes." Um. That's kind of the most extreme conspiracy, but I, I really don't think she was in on it herself. Yeah, and at least not at like a conscious level, but it's the kind of thing where you could say, well, these were the result of what happened, so whether or not that was like her goal going into it or even her superior's goal, this was basically the outcome. Mm-hmm. And nevertheless, like it really did nothing to stop the Iraq war at least, I mean, I don't think so. I don't know. It's tough to say because it went on for another, like, 12 years or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I think the most it did is make more people skeptical about WMDs. But, I mean, I do think a lot of people were skeptical about it uh, even at the time or even before this, too. Yeah. And, I just, yeah, I don't know how much legs it actually had. No, exactly. Because also a lot of the stuff was coming out more like 2006, 2007, um, like years after the initial thing. And I think at that point, like the justifications getting us into war had melted away. We were just like, well, we're at war. Yeah, it's like it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, we can kind of like let some of the this opposition exist, but it's not going to change the fact that like this machine is already moving. So do you think there was any thought involved of them basically saying or thinking 
if we can redirect any potential anti-war movement to this sort of like bureaucratic palace intrigue type story and that's more contained than like street activism yeah no 100 percent. because i think that is kind of how this country deals with a lot of these like big material issues where it's there's obvious that there's a lot of sentiment in one direction or another and people will kind of talk about organizing i still remember like I don't know, 2007 or something, uh, Keith Olbermann saying that, like, you know, this is it. People are going to be riding in the streets and then, like, literally nothing happens. But there's a whole bunch of, like, news articles and columns and op-eds that are kind of like a release valve for all this energy. Yeah, and that really highlights the parallels to Russiagate as well because it's like, at the time... A lot of people had this feeling of, like, the way they're getting out of, like, rectifying the problems with Trump or the situations brought about by Trump or whatever. Yeah, even the problems that led to Trump. Yeah, exactly. A- anything like that, they instead focused on what was mostly tenuous at best information that, like, Russians were troll posting on facebook for trump yeah and it's like you know i would absolutely buy that like russia has some amount of like trolling operations i feel they would almost be like ridiculous for them not to but then it's also like you know you got to imagine our government does the same thing i don't think russian russian troll forums are really what like tipped the needle there it just gave people a place to kind of direct a lot of that energy um or you know what the ones that we heard about were these like troll masters or some like random guy who uh like made f- these facebook groups mm-hmm. for causes he didn't actually believe in but those are the examples we heard about and it's like i don't know i have no idea what the landscape of these facebook groups is i don't know are there like ones that are domestically created and still ultimately kind of inert probably um then also, you know, the the, the whole the P tape of it all. <laughs> yes. Which another it's almost like the, the WMD of uh Russia Gate. <laughs> yeah. And, and the conclusion on that is basically that it doesn't exist. Which right? <laughs> uh, yeah, deeply disappointing. Would have been hilarious if it did, but like, you know, you think about it enough, obviously, I that would be absurd. <laughs> Yeah, that's not really Trump's M.O. Yeah, as like as petty and like weird as he is. um, And I think we can all kind of imagine that he probably is like he has like weird, like sexual proclivities, not to kink shame, but I, uh, you know, it seems a little too messy for him. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I could believe all of it, but the part I couldn't believe is that he would film any of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or actually, I guess I'd heard that maybe... It was secret camera. Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. But yeah, still, it's like... I, <laughs> and He's a petty and vindictive person. It seems like next level for him to get uh, sex workers to like pee on a bed that Obama's had previously slept in. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's almost too kind of symbolic for something to, like, bother doing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's very, like, 
Well, maybe the reason people bought into it is because it's how a dog thinks. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's true. But yeah, I just imagine the video like him standing over the bed in like his suit. Like, look at this bed. <laughs> Great place to pee. It's so beautiful, the shower. <laughs> yeah. You're pissing out the bed. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean... Do you have any more thoughts on this? I guess I'll say ultimately my conclusion is that the CIA was fairly involved in this. Um, they saw this John Wilson, Joseph Wilson article as um, an issue and the CIA maybe intervened and was like, Hey, you know, we can do that. We're willing to do this if it'll do this. Um, I don't think this, like Ch Dick Cheney or something, came up with the idea himself, but I think the CIA was like, here's how we could get out of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, I, you know, I'm sure Dick Cheney at all received these briefings of like, this is like the broader points of what's happening and what people are talking about. And here's how we can kind of spin this in our favor in one form or another, or at least convince enough people who matter that this is an important thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that was, that's been pretty good. I'm ready to start wrapping up. Um, do you have anything you want to add before we fully finish? I, yeah, I guess a couple notes when I was watching the movie, was a very funny time capsule of, I think the movie came out in like 2010, which I had, like, I don't remember this movie being out. And I feel like I was watching a lot of movies at that point. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. And it, it has like an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes or something. So it well, apparently fairly well received. And it's for all intents and purposes, like a well-made movie um, looks very good, but does have that very like, you know, the, there's an establishing shot in like Kuala Lumpur where like the like Muslim call to prayer is like playing over this like oh, washed God. out kind of like backdrop. <laughs> yes. I did think it was funny that when uh Wilson went to Niger to like investigate their uranium operations, um the mine was owned by this company called Kojima. But it's this like French company, like I think it's C O G E M A. But I was like, I looked up from my phone. I was like, what? <laughs> Hideo Kojima owns a uranium mine, and um, yeah, you know, just all the talk about like aluminum tubes. Oh yeah, we didn't even get into oh, yeah. that because that was Judith Miller's mo was like they're bringing these aluminum tubes to make weapons of mass right. destruction. And yeah, and that was the the smoking gun that we didn't want to become a mushroom cloud. When it's <laughs> yes. like, yes, uranium tubes, I guess you could use in centrifuges or aluminum tubes rather. Um, I think there are a lot of other things you can use aluminum tubes for. Absolutely. I, I don't know what they are, but it seems like a pretty generic item to exist. Also, the Wilson character orders, um, have you heard of a black eye? No. It's a coffee drink. Is it a coffee with a shot of espresso? I, you, like, I, that's the red eye, I guess. Okay. The black eye is two shots. Okay. So anytime, multiple times in the movie, he orders his drink and then immediately has to explain it to the barista. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know if there's like a weird like character quirk that they captured of this person or what. It just seems weird to have the order and then the explanation of the order. Yeah, also because 
95% of espresso makers by default make double shots. So yeah. it's like, I think most people would call it them both red eyes. I, I would think. But it's like anytime I've had to order that drink, I'm also like, I just end up explaining what it is. Mm-hmm. It's probably the kind of thing where like baristas will encounter enough people who order something like that and then the person will be happy with it so they have to they will clarify ahead of time (laughs) but yeah it's very odd just watching sean penn with his extremely thick head of hair um constantly order this drink i will add i've faced some of those issues myself because i'm usually a straight espresso drinker Mm -hmm. and um a lot sometimes i'll just ask for like an espresso on ice and they'll be like but it'll melt the ice and it's like (laughs) I do it every day. <laughs> like, I know it just use a lot of ice. Like, the, it helps dilute it a little bit. Like, I don't yeah. mind the melting. But, like, yeah, I kind of face that. Yeah, I'm not trying to uh, get, like, a really cheap latte here. <laughs> yeah. Like, apparently another trick that people will pull. Oh, like, just get espresso and put milk yeah. in it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so... Oh, and then at one point, I also thought it was funny, um, after... Uh, Sean Sean Penn submits the article and then like not much happens from it. And then uh, Naomi Watts says to him that, um, you know, you did a good job. You, um, you know, did your thing. You're just a tiny cog in a giant machine. So don't worry about it. And I feel like the the notion of them all being tiny cogs in this giant machine. I don't know if that line was supposed to kind of carry that impact, but I'm like this. The, the whole affair is just these kind of very human uh semi-human things um that you know they're hoping to kind of cause some change here to uh, affect this war and literally nothing happens other than like i don't know a year and a half kind of minor news scandal yeah because by them saying that it's basically like well we're in the same machine as like the dick cheney exactly yeah they're like looking at the camera and winking (laughs) and saying you know, there is no deep state, but, you know, we're uh, we're in the, the, the belly of this giant machine that's uh, bleeding to death. You idiots have loaded up a hair trigger, double barrel shit machine gun, and the barrel's pointed straight at your own heads. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more we could say about it, but then, you know, ultimately, at the end of most of the details, you're just like, well, what does that add? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, none of it is more than the sum of its parts. Exactly. And the greatest i think uh bow on the whole thing is that trump ended up um i guess scooter was like out of prison at that point already but trump um i'd like pardoned yeah. him and yeah then, cause yeah because bush commuted the sentence yeah. and then trump pardoned him it's just like for what at that point like i don't think <laughs> this guy was having like problems getting a job because he had a criminal record or anything it was just like a final little uh like parting gift from uh-huh. trump <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Um, Yeah, well, I think that's a good place to sign off. So my name is Christian. I'm the host of The Society Show. You can follow me on Twitter at ChristianIsCool. Is is spelled I-Z, Christian, I-Z, cool. You can follow the show at Society underscore show. And you can write into the podcast at SocietyShowPodcast at gmail.com. Pat, is there anything you want to promote? I'm Matthew on all social media. Um, follow me or don't. I talk about banal 
like corporate IT and parapolitics and um, whether I've most recently eaten or was annoyed by that day. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, um, I thought this has been a really good episode, and um, I don't know if the listeners could tell, but you are here in person, not super common for the show. Yeah, great to be in the stew. <laughs> yes, well, um, thank you for being here, and thank you for thank listening you. to The Society Show. Bye-bye.